where trees meet humans, meet insects, meet the medium that's holding on to all of these things. Something that no matter how many layers we keep peeling back, we'll never know the full extent of all the relationships that are just mangling around in the dirt that make it good. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hello, Mother. Hi, Emma. It's good to be with you today. Yes, happy spring blizzard day. Oh yeah, as we're recording this, which mm-hmm. is a couple of weeks before this episode comes out, which is funny to know, we have had this crazy snowstorm blizzard. Yeah. So it's been a funny day. Yeah. The wind blowing the snow all around. Looks like we're in the, in the tundra. tundra. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So today's episode is all about fruit and... It was such a fun episode to record, and I learned so much. And for those who have listened for the past couple of weeks, we have talked about pawpaws recently. And I'm thinking about pawpaws in relation to this episode because I think that the pawpaw, especially the one here, the local pawpaw, living out on this farm and having these pawpaws all around us, was one of my first experiences in recent memory of really super local fruit. Because I think growing up and not being super in tune with local food, fruit is one of those things that usually comes from a really far away. Yeah. And so I think the pawpaw, even though I was, you know, in my 20s, late 20s, maybe it was like my first experience of like, these things just grow wild and you can like pick it off a tree. Isn't that kind of sad? <laughs> so I was like, maybe. My Maybe my first experience with something like that. Maybe there were like berries that I'd come in contact with before. Okay. Blackberries. I've come in contact with native blackberries. Yeah. But the papa, just because it was so tropical and like foreign. You know, there's blueberries around that you can go yeah. pick. I guess you're talking about other than pick your own. Yeah, no, I'm talking about like things they that grow just, in the wild. Things that just grow in the in the yard or out. Well, the thing about papas is they kind of grow in the forest down by the water and they feel yeah. tropical and they are kind of a tropical fruit. So it's random that they would grow here. Yeah, and the thing about pawpaws is that, you know, the indigenous people that lived here on the continent before the Europeans came, I think, ate them a lot because they were so plentiful. And then I'm sure that the early Americans ate them too, and I'm sure that they were part of the homesteading experience in our American history. And even possibly as recently as, I don't know, our grandparents, my grandparents' era. But once the food supply started shifting away from local, pawpaws just didn't count because, as we have seen, they barely last from the time you either pick them 
from the tree or pick them up off the ground till you can get home. And they're so easily bruised. They can't sit around on the counter for a while. You just got to take them home and eat them. So they don't travel well. They don't last a long time. And so naturally, they just didn't fit into the food system that needed things to be stored a long time and travel a long way and, and sit on the shelf a long time and still look good. I mean, they bruise just practically by touching them, they'll bruise. Yeah. So pawpaws were kind of shoved to the side, but now there's been kind of a resurgence in interest in them with people being interested in foraging and local food and wild food and all those things. Pawpaw's kind of a rising star. (laughs) Yeah. And so speaking of like bruised fruit and things like that, I also just similarly have been much more excited about local. So in our CSA share, we get some local pears and apples and things like that, and they are not pretty they're you know kind of ugly looking and weirdly shaped and they're all scratched up but I think they just taste so good they're not super sweet I just really feel that my palate for those fruits has changed a lot now things that I still do buy sometimes because I miss them like citrus like obviously Mm -hmm. that can't grow super local I really don't get berries in the store anymore or apples really even I find grocery bought apples like so sweet and jarring. We're going to learn in today's episode a lot about apples. Yeah. They're a specialty of our guest, as we will explain. So I'm thinking about fruit and how my fruit tastes have changed just in my exposure to local fruit. And I know that you're growing some fruit here at the farm. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're growing and like how that's been going? Yeah. So we've been out at the farm here about 10 years and right away I started putting in trees, peaches, pears, pawpaws, persimmons, elderberry, all kinds of things. And now that we've been here a few years, it it takes a while. So we have been getting fruit the last several seasons. However, now I'm learning that you really have to prune them correctly. You have to thin them out when things start producing. You know, if they produce too much, then you're not going to have a good crop. That's kind of antithetical. Was that the word? Anti what well, you would think it would be. Yeah. So if you have a bunch of something, you need to get rid of some of them. So yeah. Yeah. Like probably what grows best here on our little corner of the world is peach trees. Mm. And we have several peach trees and they are amazingly prolific. And so in the spring, when those little tiny marble sized peaches start coming out, you really need to get out there and thin them out. It's really traumatizing. Jeez. So the ones that are left will have room to grow fully and not bump up against each other and get bugs and bruises and stuff. Yeah. And also the, the tree will put all of its energy into a few fruits. They have to spread it all around so many mm-hmm. that you don't get any really robust ones. So that's been a big lesson I've always kind of had trouble thinning in the garden. Yeah. It's kind of hard to do. It's a skill. So you can imagine we were so excited when we ran across Eliza Greenman, who's our guest for today. Yeah. And we were going to get to talk to her about all of this. So Eliza, if you can guess, is a tree crops specialist, horticultural historian, and agroforestry practitioner living in Northern Virginia. Her passion is in uncovering our nation's horticultural tree crops history in order to identify find and save a diversity of endangered tree species and cultivars from disappearing. She believes that in giving these trees a human-scale purpose, they have a much better chance of being preserved for generations to come. She works primarily in silvopasture agroforestry, which for anyone who's listening who is not aware of silvopasture, you will learn what that is in the episode. 
She creates orchards that not only help offset the rising cost of livestock feed, but also produce niche products such as hard cider. Her business, Hog Tree, sells charcuterie nationwide, and it's delicious. We can attest. She's also looking to purchase land for tree crops repository. So if you or anyone you might know might want to sell Eliza land in the mid-Atlantic, please get in touch with her. She has an open invitation to get in touch with her about buying some land. So I love this conversation. I learned so much and since have learned so much from Eliza, even just following her on Instagram. I find the horticulture history particularly fascinating and she does such a good job of educating on all of her posts you know fun stories of these fruits just have amazing stories behind them so after we recorded this episode and I found out what Eliza was doing I asked her to come out to the farm and help me prune and help help me understand more about thinning and the the tricks to it and um, just help me improve my fruit production here. And not only did she help me immensely, but she looked around the property and was able to speculate on some possible very, very interesting historical facts about what was happening around here. Because, you know, she's a historian, she's a tree historian and cultural historian of sorts. And so there are a couple of really interesting things that she noticed about the property. One of which she looked around and dead of winter, I don't know how she recognizes the trees, but she looked around and said that there are so many mulberry trees around here, which is a wild fruit, or at least wild around here, cultivated at one time or another, I guess. But looked at all the mulberry trees surrounding us and said that might indicate that there was a silk production operation somewhere in the area. It's fascinating. That was so cool. The silkworms eat the mulberry leaves. And so I thought oh that gosh. was super exciting. Yeah. And she's going to get back with me on that, see if she can find anything about that. And another really cool thing was we have this old pear tree in the front yard, and she thinks it might have some historical significance pertaining to the George and Martha Custis Washington family. I'll leave you in suspense on that because she needs to get back to me with more details, but I'll explain that more to come. But we do live in a very historical area outside of Washington, D.C., and there are all kinds of possibilities for things that might have gone on around here, so it's really fun. To have somebody yeah. out here with that eye. Yeah, Eliza was a delight to talk to. Yes. And she is a delight to listen to. We're so excited to share this episode with you. And the most fun thing is that she and I went to the same college and we didn't even know it until we started talking. I know. So that's fun. All right. We hope you enjoy this episode with Eliza. Yes. Here's Eliza Greenman. My name is Eliza Greenman. I'm from the Hampton Roads region of Virginia originally, so otherwise regionally known as the Tidewater. I grew up in a small-ish fishing village. Spent most of my days talking with people who were fishing, like crabbing mostly, and oyster harvesting as well. And I worked at like this back mom and pop market called Back River Market, and it was like 100 yards from where I grew up. And so I would just walk there every day. And I, I mean, I worked there forever, like from 15 until 21 or something. Over that course of time, just a small amount of time, the fishery really started to decline. And at the same time, I was selling 
all sorts of licenses for like scraping the bottom of the chest bay, eelgrass scraping, like scraping it off and killing it in order to harvest soft shell crabs and things like that. And then all of a sudden there were no soft shell crabs, like price went sky high because nobody could harvest them. And so like, that's what sent me to school. There's some really practical things that we could have done to prevent overfishing and also like ecosystem collapse, because since the waters have warmed, it's a lot harder for the eelgrass to take root and all of these things. And so I decided to go to college. I also was an athlete and I played soccer and I needed a scholarship somewhere because I couldn't afford to go to college. And so I went to the place that gave me the most money, which was in Tennessee, where I majored it's a place called Suwanee. Um, uh, we- I went to Suwanee. No way. When did you graduate? <laughs> 2006. That's so funny. I graduated in 2013. So I started in 09. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, Suwanee's right. So yeah, Suwanee gave me wow. a bunch of money to go to school. Talk and, about uh, small of world. did. <laughs> and he played soccer there. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. And uh, yeah, so... Their like closest thing to what I knew was forestry. Mm -hmm. And so I got a degree in forestry from Swanee. And that was interesting. I'm I'm just giving you a real abbreviated history. I graduated. I took a job in California where I was in the middle of nowhere. We literally would work 10 days on and then have like two weeks off. And we would have to go to like a pinprick through a map. And sometimes it would take us three days to hike in to get these little pinpricks where we would have to inventory the whole site. And then it would take us three days to hike out. And what were you looking for? So we were going every like five or 10 years, the Forest Service has to inventory these certain points all across the United States to see like, what was the impact? Was there an insect impact? Was there a fire? You know, what's the ecological damage essentially or growth of a site given like known current events? basically. And so that was just too much, that job. Yeah. (laughs) That was like a lot of alone time. (laughs) Um, I lived in my car for like seven months because you can't rent, you know, like there's no home base. And so, yeah, I then was like, okay, so this part of forestry, even though it's interesting, is not, I'm not meant to be alone like this. That's when I got a job in Louisiana kind of doing the same thing. But there it was like so much more diverse. There was fruits on the ground, you know, like persimmons, on the ground. Sometimes I saw pawpaws, lots of hickories, lots of fruits and nuts. And at that time I was like, you know what? Like, I'm not interested in harvesting trees. Like I'm not interested in the selling of trees, but I do like these tree crops that are falling on the ground and kept that in mind. And then I got a scholarship to go live in Germany for a year. And that's when it all started to manifest because they had a vibrant like farmer's market. I was able to go every single day. And there was a Swiss apple guy that had like 45 varieties of apples. And so I started to think, oh, you know, like there's really a lot of diversity even within these individual fruit and nut crops. That's interesting. And so then I had to return to the United States. I ended up on an island off the coast of Maine with 70 people year-round, Little Cranberry Island. Oh, (laughs) wow. And there, it was an island covered in apples. And a friend of mine was like, hey, do you know how to prune apple trees? It's like, she's like, Forrester, like, (laughs) you got to know. And I was like, I have no idea. And so I got this amazing man named Phil Norris, piano tuner, apple tree pruner. (laughs) He made me find a couple pianos for him to tune in order for him to come out to the island (laughs) to teach the pruning workshop. That's so cool. 
And in that tree, I was just struck with white hot passion. Like I can't explain it, but right then and there during that workshop, there's an instant where it was like, everything makes sense. Like my forestry background, my slow growing knowledge of fruits and, you know, where I was in landscape, it was just like, that's it. I have to work at the time with apples. And I became, I mean, I was just completely single-mindedly obsessed. (laughs) And I pruned every tree on the island terribly, (laughs) which is what you do in your 20s. My God, I didn't know anything, (laughs) but I did it thinking I did. Yeah. (laughs) And learned a lot. And then I apprenticed for some old people, (laughs) (laughs) one being 97 years old. Wow. And who had like, you know, hundreds of apple varieties. Was this a grower, an apple grower that you apprenticed with? Yeah. Oh, wow. And so he was like bringing things from the past. So here was his deal. So I apprenticed with a guy named John Bunker, who was up until this year, the head of Fedco Trees in Maine. He was the genius behind all of Fedco's like tree program, which is a nursery. And so I apprenticed with him. And then I apprenticed with his mentor, Francis Fenton, who was a third generation apple grower in Maine. And when he got home from World War II, he realized that a lot of the old apple varieties that he grew up with were going down fast, like disappearing. And so he started collecting from all over Western Maine, these apple cultivars that were about to go extinct. And so he brought them back to his farm. And then from there, John Bunker like took a bunch of cuttings off of his farm and made him popular again through his nursery company. So yeah, I worked with Francis for a year and it was the best of times and the absolute worst of times. (laughs) (laughs) Like like if anybody out there is listening and thinking about living with a 97 year old mentor, (laughs) just know they don't sleep. It's a lot. lot. He would play saxophone (laughs) at like 11 o'clock at night and he was tone deaf. (laughs) And so like, oh, it was, there were so many parts of it that were just so frustrating, (laughs) but I learned a lot. But one thing he did that I really was upset about, one, he tried to talk me out of growing apples every single day. Like whatever commercial was on the TV about like, he was like, you should become a nurse or like, (laughs) you should go to ECTI and become like a computer technical consultant (laughs) or like HVAC worker. (laughs) Don't do this. Anyway, one of the reasons though, he was like, there's no money in apples was because he was growing like 140 varieties and they all look different. They all had different shapes, sizes, textures, taste, everything. And he only wanted to grow beautiful apples. Like he wanted to take something that looked like a potato and he wanted to will it into looking like a red delicious. Mm. And there's just no way he just had a different set of genetics and it was never going to happen, but he sure tried. And so we sprayed so many chemicals on the trees and I got poisoned one morning because, oh, for so many reasons I got poisoned, but I'll just paint the picture for you is there's this 97 year old man on a tractor and then he's got on the tractor, he's got a cart with a generator hooked up to a pressure washer and a tank. Uh And so I had to run. He was in like first gear and I would have to run behind the tractor, like wildly spraying these apple (gasps) trees. He couldn't hear me because he's 97 and it's a tractor. Anyway, I ended up getting a tear across my like HVAC suit or whatever. 
didn't know because you know, when you have water sprayed on you and you have like a waterproof suit, yeah. it feels like you have water, you know, like you can't tell if it's yeah. actually on your skin. So I got soaked with, oh, oh my gosh. And was sick for like a whole week. And that's when I was like, nope, I can't do this. The farm worker, this is the price of like yeah. beautiful fruit is one, we're killing the ecosystem Two, the farm workers getting poisoned. And mm -hmm. like, ask any farmer that's worked like on a fruit farm, one that sprays, they've all been had poisoned. major, yeah, they've yeah. all been poisoned. And so just like passing that on to an employee to get poisoned or something, it's just not okay. Can I ask what was being sprayed? Was it a fungicide or what was it that particular time? That particular day was, was a fungicide. Yeah. And I yeah. took it all down my back. Oh my but, goodness. You know, the sprays run the gamut too. So I'm glad I, we weren't spraying like streptomycin that day mm -hmm. for fire blight or like imidan, which is a major pesticide. But um, yeah, so that's when I just decided, no, yeah. I'm not going to live this way. It's not responsible. And I'm kowtowing to this market that still won't buy these fruits. Yeah. Wow. They're different. So that's when I really set out on my own mission of trying to find more disease innately, like disease resistant fungicide that just can grow in these areas and not struggle. Because at that time, like hard cider was starting to become a thing. This was like 2010, where it was a thing, but it was starting yeah. to really catch on. Mm -hmm. So I was like, there's these markets that I can absolutely sell these fruits too. Oh yeah. And they can be blemished. So yeah, in that journey, I went to Central Asia because I was like, okay, this is the genetic homeland of apples and pears and like 70% of all temperate fruits in the world. And so if I go there, they've co-evolved for, you know, millions of years with everything nature could throw at them. Maybe I'll have a better chance of growing that stuff here with less inputs or at least have the genetics to cross with things that are already doing quite well. And it was there, like I went to Kyrgyzstan expecting like this wild, like in a permaculture way, I was in really into permaculture at the time. And I was expecting this like wild food forest where I would have to have like a machete and cut through the brambles and like, you know, all <laughs> like a movie and, and everything was edible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, and that wasn't the case at all. I got there and it was like, these people have formed a relationship with these forests, these wild apple walnut forests and their animals. And so to me, it was like the most sustainable example of agriculture I have ever seen where they were grazing livestock, let's say cows, they're grazing cows in these apple walnut forests. The walnuts have a natural chemical called juglone. It's one, it's part of a anti-parasite, but two, it's like an insect detractor so like it was putting off these gases that like no insects want to fly through and so that was helping the apples produce like insect free fruit then if there was an insect that got on the fruit the tree would drop it because it's like once the seeds of an apple are eaten it's no good to the tree anymore because they just want to propagate themselves and so drop to the floor then the cow comes through eats the dropped apple completely disrupts that pest cycle yeah is eating some walnut leaves along the way which is acting as an anti-parasite like a natural dewormer and it's mowing down the grass then walnut harvest happens apple and walnut harvest happens there 
walnuts are a part of currency. So they're just like the ground is prepped for it. And then people get walnuts out of it. And then they get really sustainable meats and the trees are getting fertilized by the cattle going underneath. So it's like just this beautiful cycle. Yeah. And that was when I was like, all right, I didn't know it was called agroforestry at the time. And actually like I really was resistant to labeling it anything for a while. Uh But yeah, animals integrated into orchards, that's diverse orchards in order to obtain like tree care, decent fruit production, and also producing another economic strata of livestock. That's how it happened. And I haven't looked back, really. It's amazing. That's such a great story with so many parts. <laughs> yeah. And it's sorry, I just let you have it. <laughs> you say you that was your sort of introduction to the term and the method of agroforestry, if you call that a method, and that you went into it. You were very immersed in permaculture. So I'm interested to know where those things overlap for you. And if you could you know, we we kind of toss these terms around a lot here on the podcast. And if you could kind of talk about like agroforestry and what it means and how it differs and overlaps with agroecology and permaculture, biodynamic farming, regenerative farming. They're not all the same thing, but they're not all that different either. Food forests, all those sorts of things. Yeah. So I've really struggled with labels, labeling like movements for a long time. And that's because they mean anything you want them to mean right? Yeah. a lot of the time. The meaning <laughs> so, is in the eye, ear of the listener. <laughs> like, exactly. Oh so, so for me, like these days, I operate under the word of agroforestry because to me, it's kind of a blanket or a giant umbrella that encompasses a lot of other things like permaculture and food forests and perhaps not biodynamics, but I can talk about that yeah. or de- or biodynamics. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. And, uh, and agroecology. So like agroecology to me is kind of the awareness of the connection between soil and plants and human life and all life basically. And the wisdom accumulated within. So that to me is kind of the, it's the social impact or the societal connections and just definitely the pinning down, like humans are inextricable from these systems. Like animals are inextricable from these systems. And then with permaculture, it's just stands for permanent agriculture, which means perennials. (laughs) So (laughs) for me, it's like, if you can get, if you can just grow more perennials, a lot of people think they're doing permaculture. And by the way, you got to do like the people care and the self care and all these other things, which Mm -hmm. fortunately, maybe through permaculture becoming more and more of a repeated thing these days like what are you doing for self-care monday yeah (laughs) (laughs) all these prompts (laughs) so like that's weaving itself in but agroforestry to me is really just like incorporating trees or woody perennials into agricultural systems and we should do best by acknowledging all the other parts of it's hard because it's only within our awareness of what we can acknowledge and so like indigenous wisdom and indigenous practices or the natural 
patterns of certain wildlife in your system. You just got to keep picking these things out and follow, you know, it's like a string and you just keep following it and following it and following it and you find it's connected to the whole world. And so maybe agroforestry to me is the largest part of being the whole world in my awareness <laughs> spectrum right now. So that's why I struggle. With yeah, all these things. definitely. Yeah. And all these things and these movements and these labels, as you call them, they're always busting out of them. As soon as you define something, it's like, oh, well, this isn't that it's, you know, it has to be something else. So it, it gets very confusing. And probably the bottom line in all this is that all of it is really just an effort to bring ourselves back to a not degenerative way of dealing with our food and our survival on the planet, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, regenerative I've struggled with, but yeah. I think I've come to a meeting grounds with it lately because I've asked a lot of people like, why are you regenerative? And I'll get mm -hmm. things like, I rotationally graze. And it's like, okay, well, what do you do in the winter? I feed grain from Southern states and <laughs> I buy, you know, and it's just like, maybe my standards are too high mm -hmm. <laughs> for this, yeah. for this oh, term wow. regenerative, but actually Ariel Greenwood is a grazer out West, but she has roots on the East coast. I think I saw her the other day, write That regenerative to her is like measuring the improvement of your practices. Mm. It's like, it's a measure of improvement. Yeah. So I like that by what standards you're using or how things are improved. It's only up to us to do yeah. the best we can do. Well, it's like sustainable or zero waste or, you know, we say, oh, I'm going to go zero waste. Well, there's really no way to go zero waste with the way things are with all the systems we have in place. But we can do better. <laughs> and totally. sustainability is such a broad term. And, you know, we use it all over the place these days. And I guess what that really means to us is like helping people at least move along the spectrum in some way. We're all a long way from getting all the way there. But we can all make little steps. And as you say... Yeah. Improve. Where are we improving in our sustainability journey? Where are we improving in, in not just degrading our resources in the planet and the soil and all those things? Mm -hmm. I really love hearing you talk about these different terms in the context of we can't really define this stuff. We're all just kind of making our way through basically what's kind of a big mess out there. Eliza, can you tell us what you're doing right now, like what you do today? Sure. There's a couple things. Well, a few things I'm doing. Right now, I have a charcuterie company called Hogtree. One of my whole companies is called Hogtree. And that's just basically promoting, it helps to fund my research and my fruit exploring, which I'll get into in a little bit. One of my main goals in life right now is to work tirelessly to create orchard systems that help not only provide shade for livestock and niche products for humans, but also help offset the cost of livestock feed. So dropping fruits, dropping nuts in a manner that is easily eaten by livestock and they benefit from a nutritional standpoint. Trees are benefiting from a fertilizer standpoint, but really like if you look today, one of the major complaints of livestock farmers, especially like poultry and pigs, is the rising cost of feed. And so if I can create systems that will, for the majority of the year, just provide livestock feed, you know, and and make them like super psyched to eat it. That's not a grain. That's not from a tillable field. It's something that's dropping from trees. Mm -hmm. Then that's one of my main goals. And so what do I do to do that is I've been at this since 2009. 
I've been with Apple since 2009. <laughs> We've been in a in a relationship. Now, now it's a bit of an open relationship. <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> yeah, it's complicated. But um, I've worked in so many very nerdy Apple realms that <laughs> I started to have, I had access to like hundreds of cultivars. And so I started to see, okay, like what what used to be problems for something like spraying an orchard was this five acre orchard has apples that are blooming two months apart from each other. And so that was like spot spraying, all these different things everywhere, or they're dropping fruit like two months different or four months different. And so I started taking notes of like, okay, this cultivar this year, like dropped fruit between this date and this date. And this cultivar this year, you know, the next year dropped fruit. And so you start to get a scale of when these fruits drop. And so I've been doing that forever. (laughs) And I started to say, okay, well then why can't I create paddock for my pigs where I just, each paddock contains these fruit trees that drop at this certain time. And so that's what I've been working on is just expanding that. So I've got the apples. I've got apples that'll start dropping in our climate, 7A, middle of June all the way into they'll cling onto the tree and won't drop. There'll be mush bags, but they'll Mm. drop in like January. Mm. And so then I worked on, I started looking at pears and this is like reading old. I do a lot of digitization of old archives so that I can then like command F (laughs) search Mm. 400 years of stuff (laughs) and find things more so quickly. I don't who has time to read these days when it comes to this. So yeah, so I did pears and I got into some really nerdy fruit groups that are completely consisting of old people like Nafex. Um, when I joined the North American Fruit Explorers, everybody seemed to be over the age of 70. <laughs> and, and now it's a little better. <laughs> it was only six years ago. Why is that? Because fruit tree, perennial tree crops uh-huh. or just tree crops are an old person's game. Um, because by the time you get into it, you already have land, yeah. you have some sort of retirement fund, mm-hmm. and then you plunge into it. This seems to be the going rate for everybody in NFX or the Northern Neck Growers. And then yeah. it takes years and, and years to get the yeah. fruit. <laughs> yeah. And that's the problem is that they have like one or two sweet runs and then they're out of here. By out of here, they're dead. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then, yes. Well, <laughs> it's such a problem. <laughs> yeah, well, here you are. Here you yeah. are, kind here of. Here I am. Yeah. Full of struggles. <laughs> well, but as long as we're talking about apples and you're talking about horticultural history, it's so interesting. I think it'd be really interesting for you know for people to hear what you're talking about in terms of the apples. You're going to walk into your grocery store and you've got your honey crisp and your red delicious and all this kind of things. How is that? different today how are those apples different from what was growing on the land like a generation ago or two generations ago and or 100 200 years ago we gotta go more generations than that yeah just talk Um, about that a little bit talk about the evolution of for example the apple or let's zoom out a little bit and i'll give you just kind of a movement that sort of changed everything in the united states so at the turn of the century heading into the 20th century we had 17,000 apple varieties. And actually there's all sorts of, there's this book series called, it's called the Of New York series. So there's apples, peaches, pears, plums, cherries of New York. And it's around the turn of the century. It's a complete catalog of what fruit varieties were in New York 
mm. at that point in time. And the books are like this thick, you know, wow. they're like five inches thick of just page after page after page. And so anyway, we had 17,000 apple varieties. We had thousands of other fruit varieties. And now today we have 7,000 apples and far less peaches and things like that. And so the question is like, what happened? And I've traced this back quite a bit. In the early 1900s, there was a group of bankers, lawyers, merchants, railroad tycoons, the president, who were all in on this group. They were called the National Soil Fertility League. Oh my goodness. And they basically were like, look, one, we need to build a railroad out West. And so we need to figure out like how to get the most bang for a buck. Like I want to charge tariffs or I want to charge, we got to get things growing. So in order to get those crops, like into New York City or into Boston or whatever. And so they're like, well, how are we going to do this? I guess we need to really slim down what we have. <laughs> so instead they chose like 10, I think, or seven apple cultivars, for example, for certain regions that would store well, looked beautiful, like, you know, were able to be shipped, no problem. And things like disease resistance and taste did not factor. This is mm. like one of those apples, for example, is called Ben Davis that tastes like cardboard, mm. but it could be put in a barrel, shipped to Great Britain and would look perfect. Mm. And so that happened for all the perennial fruit cultivars, peaches, pears, apples, you name it. And that was really just a system to consolidate in a huge way in order to get these things to mass markets. Mm. So we see a breakdown of local farms supporting local systems. And instead it becomes, okay, we're going to feed New York city. We're going to feed, you know, these are, wow. we got bigger markets to feed more expensive markets to feed. And so that was the rise of the cooperative extension system. What eventually came out of the soil fertility league. And that taught people strictly how to grow only certain kinds of fruits and everything else was like, I don't know. And to this day, that's exactly how it is. Like, wow. Yeah. Because there's, there's so much variation. It's not just like growing an apple is growing an apple is growing an apple. There's for an apple tree, for example, there's different bud structures. There's different vigors. Like the trees could be complete. They could stay dwarfing and produce fruit heavily, or they could, all like all throughout the whole tree or they could be like 60 feet tall and only fruit on the very tips of the branches so there's just so much and that's when we really got took a hit into our biodiversity as a country and we haven't recovered since and we only move in these directions of very narrow fields like crisp apples you know honey crisp yeah anything with crisp on it that i mm -hmm. i mock incessantly usually. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, sure. They're great. But you know what they do? They store forever. <laughs> like you can keep a Honeycrisp in storage for like for years, it seems. And are they cultivated to have like a ton more sugar than maybe some of the heirloom apples, I'll call it? No, not really. That's just how they taste because of the variety? Yeah. You know, sometimes the taste of sugar that we have uh -huh. is a lot of times like this perfect balance of acidity with sugar. Because there are like some old apple varieties that are called sweets that were used for molasses making in New England back when sugarcane wasn't available. And it was just like another option. It was a different season of sugar from maple sugaring. Uh -huh. If you were to eat those out of hand, 
it tastes like a banana. It's just like, what is this? This is bland, but it's like full of sugar. Mm It just has no acidity whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So today there's like tons of old heirloom apples that have amazing amounts of sugar. It's just that they don't look great. Yeah, Yeah. people think they're bad. They don't want to Mm -hmm. pick them up in the store and so forth. But I guess the reason I asked that question about the sugar is because years ago uh, when my husband was the paleo, whole paleo diet thing was first, Mm -hmm. you know, coming forth. Like everybody was like, oh, what's that? Now everybody knows. But And the advice then was like an apple, a modern day apple, these cultivars we are accustomed to seeing in the store are just a ton of sugar and that they are bred that way. But I hear you saying, no, that's just the way the varieties are. Yeah. I mean, if you think about, here's an example is some crab apples old, like old crab apples or crab apples in the wild that are untended, uncultivated. They're just some sort of wild seedling. Mm -hmm. I've harvested some crab apples that have a bricks of 28. And so that's really high. Like that's, this is fermentation speak, usually through like cider makers and whatnot. Yeah, I've heard of that. But you know, that'll land you an, if you were to ferment that, that would land you an alcohol percentage of like, I don't even know, over 14%. Oh, Oh, wow. And whereas a lot of these commercial apples are 13 bricks, you know, they're Mm -hmm. less than half. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times just because of the way they're growing with irrigation and just they're being kind of factory farmed, they have even less sugar. Mm-hmm. And sugar in apples is often a measure of health. And also like this whole sugar paradigm, it gets a little complicated because there's different kinds of sugars. And Right, yeah. The sucrose versus fructose versus glucose. And I won't get into that, but yeah, it's an interesting thing where they might have, maybe they have more sugars of a bat of a worse kind for us, or they just don't have the phenols. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because they're being basically grown in these sterile environments. Would that be the same for like just the overall nutrition density of these modern cultivars? Yeah, for sure. So I'm a firm believer that you can grow nutritionally dense cultivars of almost anything. Uh It's just your growing practices. And I think that what we're seeing is just sterile soils, like just glyphosate strips. So roundup strips right underneath every apple tree row. That's pretty standard irrigation. Nothing's living on these trees. A lot of times, like even these organic apple blocks are just islands in the middle of conventional apple, hundreds of acres of conventionally sprayed to hell apples, just so nothing living can fly in. And I think maybe that's where we're seeing our nutrient density plunge is just the lack of care (laughs) on the apple's behalf or any fruit tree's behalf Mm -hmm. of their health. Wow. So when you are just in the grocery store, like for instance, like a Trader Joe's or just like the most Kroger, like accessible produce section of whatever store, are those generally, they don't say, especially if they don't say organic, they're obviously generally conventional. Are those going to be like from the States, America? Or are they, do we like import apples from anywhere else? And these like oh, yeah. factory farms, if you just like go to a store and get an apple, where do you think it's going to be coming from? And how intentional does one have to be to like seek out better, I'm using quotation marks, apples? Right. So I was once a member of US Apple, which was like <laughs> the Apple industry's lobbying arm. Of course you were. <laughs> You're like Miss I, Apple. We need to give you a I, sash. <laughs> I felt like a plant. Yeah. <laughs> because everything I was saying, I was like, oh my God, this is how it works. Like, 
you know, like I saw them present this giant like prices right check or whatever to a senator <laughs> for like their good job, you know, really hammering through and getting their legislation like oh, wow. in, oh my God. to a bill form. It was like, this is how it works. You got to pay to play. Like, it's crazy. But with that said, I learned from that, that apples are a commodity on mm -hmm. the world market. And so like, you might've noticed that something like red delicious apple has really tanked mm -hmm. and in public, like nobody wants to eat it. Yeah. And so all these holdouts of or like giant thousands of acre orchards, but mostly in the West still had all these red delicious trees and they needed something to do. So they started like U.S. Apple has all sorts of trade agreements. So like a bunch of apples go to India, a bunch of red delicious. I mean, they go all over the world, but a lot of those trade agreements are sort of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours or vice versa. Um, and we get like apples from New Zealand and apples from Australia because their seasons are opposite ours. Yeah. So they come in and we get juice from China and we get, I mean, apples are coming from everywhere. Okay. Uh, that where where these are like alliance trade alliances. But with that said, we have some crazy storage abilities these days. Like they have rooms that will suck the oxygen out and pump. I think it's some version of nitrogen gas, and that basically keeps them in this preserved form of they don't live, they don't breathe. Like there's wow. nothing, you know, they're Cri just there. Cryogenic, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like they're frozen. kind of like, but they're not frozen. Yeah, <laughs> I'm imagining are. one of those <laughs> tubes, like when, when we all have to like, when they're, all the rich people leave Earth, right? When it blows up. Yeah. <laughs> I just watched that movie and you like get in the pod and then you, yeah. she's talking about don't totally. look up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Have you watched that uh, yet? No, I, I can't watch it. <laughs> <Yeah>. It's horrifying. <laughs> but that noise, that like air release noise, yeah. like, yeah. and yeah. open it up. And then there's this perfectly preserved person that's alive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's how it is. Like in the <laughs> apple industry. Wow. And so a, a lot of, and I can tell these days, but a lot of apples we eat are like right now are a year old, you know, oh, they've wow. just been unlocked out of these crazy <laughs> containers and their flavor really takes a dive, mm -hmm. but that's just to say, like, we don't know. They're coming from all over the place and they're also coming from these weird preservation chambers. And the best way to avoid it is to eat in season and like, or preserved fruits. Yeah. <laughs> not, or like... not like fruit preserves, not like preserved in nitrogen gas. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, fermented <laughs> and yeah seek out these fruit farms a lot of younger growers people that are coming from inherited orchards are starting to really shy away from like global commodities or even like united states wide commodities and instead they're getting into more niche like producing for cider having new picks stuff like mm -hmm. that and mm -hmm. so i think we see a trend the market trends are there and so just start seeking these out or like start communicating. If I was a customer, I would just call up orchards and just keep harassing these old people that are going to answer the phone about <laughs> when are you going to open up this thing in the public? How many, can you grow more apple varieties? Yeah. What's your succession plan? <laughs> you know, like, and then call me <laughs> if okay. this person wants to sell. <laughs> right now you're working on 
charcuterie and kind of establishing these systems. And then are you teaching that to other people? What's kind of your plan with that? And are you like leasing land? Do you like have a farm where you have everything? Like what's your setup now? I saw your plea on your blog that you're looking for land in Virginia. So tell us how that's going. Maybe a listener can help you. So (laughs) yeah, just to let you know, I am in the look for land. I'll get into that in a minute. Yeah. So I do a little bit of teaching these days, less so. I've been doing some webinars. I've been doing some really small workshops <laughs> that are hard to get access to. <laughs> I hope to be doing a lot more teaching in the near future. And that says I am leasing land. So I have two sites that I lease. The first is pretty newly established. Like I have some very a little bit of fruit, but it's coming on. And so once that starts coming on more and I have more to offer in terms of dinners and, you know, having really like an agritourism, the site is really set up. My business partners are really into it. So that'll be happening where we'll have workshops and stuff like yeah. that. COVID has really thrown a whole yeah. whatever into it. And also like I have to be safe of just biosecurity and also like my own personal security and things like that. So just trying to work out how can mm-hmm. I have a workshop <laughs> where everybody's vouched for, <laughs> you know, before they show up, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate, but it's reality. So yeah. And then I have had pigs on both properties. One of the properties is mostly woods and it's walnuts, hickory walnut forest with some acorns. And so the pigs were finished there or they go into the woods when it's super hot because my trees aren't that big yet and they need shade. And so usually and moving forward, it's definitely going to be more of a balance of moving them from one to the next just so they don't struggle. And how many do you have? And do you raise the whole thing and you do the whole hog farm? Yeah, that's called like farrowing operation. That's when you have sows and a boar and then you have piglets. Yeah. And that means I can never have a vacation. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so for right now, that's in the future, like 10 year plan Mm -hmm. is to have my own like locked in breeding operation where I don't have any outside inputs for in terms of, in terms of animals. Mm -hmm. But for right now I bring them in when they're like say 50 pounds and then they go to market when they're about 270 pounds. Okay. Ish. And so that's about six or seven months generally. But the other part of what I do is fruit exploring and that's actively going out and getting notable or interesting, like historically notable fruit and nut cultivars from the landscape. A lot of times these trees are like the last ones living and the markets lately, like the real estate markets are so terrifying in this way because land is changing hands faster than ever. And it's not for farmers, it's for a lot of city people or a lot of people wanting to capitalize on low interest rates and have a second home or investment property. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these people are cutting down stuff because of aesthetics. Like, oh, that tree, that tree's, uh, it's going to die. So let's just cut it down. And it's like, oh my God, that's like, that was the last known cultivar of that tree in the world. Oh, wow. And that's happened. That happened to me just less than a mile away from where I live right now. And so that's where I'm really doing some focusing on is going out, collecting these really important trees that I've deemed important, because in order to like save this biodiversity, you have to have a practical use. And so feeding livestock is the bottom ground Mm. (laughs) of all this. Like if I can get these trees to health offset livestock feed costs, then people will plant them. Uh Yeah. And so because of that, I am desperate for more land 
because I've run out of space. And so in order to keep this system sort of evolving and also protecting it in order to get it out into the public, yeah, I'm looking for at least 30 acres of land, ideally in the eastern half of Virginia. So stay east of Harrisonburg, for okay. example, all the way up and down. So I'm not, I'm not that picky. Yeah. But man, it's been hard because of the way loans go. I only call because I'm a self, completely self-employed. And I only qualify for special USDA loans that are written for self-employed farmers. Mm-hmm. But the terms, there's no pre-approval. Like it's going to take 90 days and nobody in this market is wanting to sell anything on over a 90 day term. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. If anybody wants to sell, hit me up. Okay. Listeners. We out will there. put it it's out also there. Not terribly expensive. Once again, I'm self-employed. Yeah. So I so enjoyed reading through your blog and you're a great kind of myth buster with some things. One of them being Bradford pear trees, how they're so maligned. And you explain how, yeah, they're problems, but, and you go into that whole discussion. I really appreciated that because I mean, they're all over the place and I was beginning to feel pretty depressed about them because everything you read is like, oh, they're so terrible. You know, they're going to be the end of us. And then, and you go, no, actually not. So I appreciated that. And I got a kick out of the heart rot. I think that was your most recent blog, heart rot. Mm -hmm. Because I remember growing up how so many trees that I played on or climbed or whatever would have a big old hole in them that was filled with concrete. And, uh... (laughs) I, I hate that. Yeah, I know. I, I love that. I mean, this has been going on a long time. I mean, I'm in my 60s. So, I mean, so I really learned a lot from that. How the heart rot is like a, a natural process. And you cite the Winnie the Pooh stories as, you know, when you have heart rot in an old tree, it provides habitat. Correct. <laughs> like for Owl and Rue and all, whoever else. So anyway, I really enjoy your blog. Bradford pears are like the most maligned thing in the United States yeah. right now, or at least on the eastern United States. And I'm here to say they're not that bad. And that's because I think there's a way to control them. So Bradford pear was brought to the United States from the USDA in China as a like an SOS because fire blight, which is a bacterial disease, was killing the whole pear industry was was succumbing to fire blight on the West Coast. And they were like, all right, we got much like when I went to Kyrgyzstan to find like the oldest genetics there were, USDA sent USDA plant explorers to China to find stuff that was known to be fire blight tolerant just because it's been through it all. It's mm. old. Yeah. And the thing is, is that at the time when they were planting them out in the West Coast, they weren't going to work out as as a nursery crop tree because they just weren't going to work out. And so somebody noticed, holy cow, look at all the blossoms on that thing. Like, that's incredible. And so they planted a whole bunch out in Maryland, actually in a suburb of Beltsville, Maryland, to watch them. And it was just like, wow, look at all these amazing flowering early spring trees. Like this is exactly what we need. And that was great for a while. And these trees were thought to be sterile. So thought that like their pollen was no good. Mm. And so there would, they would never fruit. And turns out that the guy that was collecting over in China, he walked so far every day. He walked like 30 miles every day collecting pears that he collected from genetically distinct populations of calorie pear. And so once people in like Beltsville saw like, oh, look at like these incredible trees, they started planting all these other 
Bradford trees from seed oh. like that they were getting from the West mm. that was brought in originally. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, this is a tree from like four genetics, 400 miles away and it's crossing. And all of a sudden they have these tiny pairs. So it was different enough. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's and, crazy. And so that's why they're invasive is one, because of like this dude who was like a power walker all over Asia, but also because they're small, the pairs are super small. And they fit inside of most of our native fruit eating birds mouths. And so they're there, they hang late into the season. And so things like cedar wax wings are a big uh-huh. one. They're probably most responsible. Yeah, they eat these Bradford pears and then like poop on a fence line. And that's what comes up or on power lines or whatever. Mm. And so the way to make them less invasive is to make the fruits bigger. And so that's where I'm saying, and also Bradford pear or calorie pear is like the best rootstock we have in our climate. It's mostly yeah. fire blight resistant. It's precocious. Like deer don't eat it. So you can graft it above deer brows and have like ready-made trees that you don't have to worry about. But um, yeah, so if we can all just, instead of cutting them down, which serves no purpose, mm-hmm. if we can instead cut the tops off, graft cultivars onto them that flower at the same time as breadfruit pear, in order to better larger fruit, in order to get larger fruit into those next generation seedlings, it won't take very long, in my mind anyway, a couple decades, to have populations of pears that are too large for birds to spread and will knock down their invasiveness in a huge way. That's brilliant. Is that your idea? It is. That's just really brilliant. And <laughs> those people that might be listening might kind of not know what we're talking about, but the Bradford pear is seen as this huge problem because, as Elizabeth has been explaining, it's it's so invasive, and they get so big, and then they split, and then there you have all these torn-up trees everywhere that are taking up space for more valuable trees and all these things and it's just it's just been kind of like the scourge of the of certainly in Maryland they just have such a terrible terrible reputation so I thought that was so interesting yeah and if you want to read more you can go to my blog yes elizaapples.com I have a couple essays on it and boy have I received hate mail Uh that's fine (laughs) so much of it is baseless man Bradford pears evoke an emotional reaction yeah not very a very logical one that's so interesting yeah really we got to know our enemies in order to beat them and uh, it's not really Bradford pear not getting to know them Like, we have other things to worry about, maybe, you know, yeah. and the Bradford, the invasion of the Bradford pair. <laughs> Interesting. So tell the heart rot story. So heart rot is the hollowing of a tree. Like when it, you look at a tree and it's hollow inside, mm-hmm. that's called heart rot. And a lot of times that has a stigma to it of like, oh, that tree's not healthy. Yeah. Cut it down. It's suffering. And that's not true at all. So like, trees hollow out naturally and it's not like that they're unhealthy it's that they're meant the only living part of a tree is just under the bark it's called the vascular cambium it's a very thin swath and everything else is not living in the tree and it's just like a repository of nutrients and heavy metals and you know all sorts of things that the tree has uptaken but it cauterizes in tree rings every year. So yeah, it's just, li- it just lives moving outwards, if that makes any sense. But um, yeah, so my whole thing was stop saying 
heart rot is a measure of health because there's trees that like I went and learned a pruning style in Basque France that and also Basque Spain that's called pollarding and it's called permanent renewal. And so you're pruning heavily every year or every other year. And in doing this, it's undisputed that this is how you can have a tree live forever is if you just keep up the pruning process. Oh, wow. And every single one of these trees is hollow and they actually try to make them hollow early on by like take a hatchet and drive it into the middle and just try to create this opening for water and air and insects to get into in order to create this heart rot that'll travel down this tree because these spaces these hollowed spaces are habitat. And also, if you think about it, like, yeah, they're habitat for bugs and they're habitat for all sorts of animals, but they're also helping to create soil within these trees. Heart rot basically turns a tree into an active composter. Oh, wow. That by inviting animals and insects in, through time, this compost gets taken from the tree outwards through its mycelial networks. And it's amazing. And it's yet so cool. here we are viewing it as a sickly thing. It's almost yeah. like it needs a rebrand, like the name is kind of misleading. Totally. Yeah. I don't know if anybody wants to submit a rebranding, I'll use it. It's call it heart space. <laughs> heart. Heart space. Heart healthy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, but I love this. And, you know, everybody go read Eliza's blog. It's really great. It's super informative and super fun and interesting. And like I said, you're such a myth buster in terms of plant. So given the magnitude of problems that we're facing on the planet right now in terms of food production and soil health and human health, where do you see individual consumer decisions being able to really affect enough change to make a real difference in the direction of things. In other words, what can listeners out there do to promote more sustainable relationship between humans and food and the earth ecology and all these things that you're constantly observing and working on? It's tough. Once again, it's kind of tied to certain movements that often are just not broad enough. Uh -huh. Like, for instance, paper straws or yeah. <laughs> using paper straws instead of plastic straws. Sure, yeah. that's great. <laughs> but that's not affecting anything around you yeah. <laughs> right now. Yeah. And so I would say like maybe just embracing the like alive chaos that's around us or in us mm -hmm. and becoming more aware that everything is a medium for life. So, I mean, and that's like gut biome, that's your lawn, like stop spraying your fucking lawn with chemicals. Sorry, I just <laughs> stop spraying your lawn with chemicals. <laughs> Like stop creating these deserts and also just, mono, you know, in this idea of monoculture, like nature is no form of monoculture ever. It's usually a remnant of a collapsed ecosystem where you only have one or two things that are able to live. And just on the far side of the spectrum is something to think about. I really am. I don't like invasive plants or opportunistic plants necessarily, but a lot of times they have really incredible aspects to them that I think are going to unlock some of our needs. And so just instead of just joining in on this witch hunt of, <laughs> of just certain keywords, like, please get to know these things like far more intimately. If you're going to hate it, you better have a lot of reasons to yeah. hate it that don't come out of a magazine. So like, I'm going to give you an example. And this is not Bradford Pear. Okay. Well, read my blog on, on Bradford Pear because that's a big example. Yeah. But something that I've been researching a lot over the past couple of years has been autumn olive. 
So like yes. autumn olive is all <gasps> over where I was going to ask you about this. Go and ahead. It produces a really beautiful red berry with like yeah. silver specks. The berry is actually quite delicious. I've completely fooled my family on the cranberry sauce this year um, at Thanksgiving with autumn olive. But yeah, so it's a weed tree. It's growing everywhere. It's taking over whatever. But something really interesting about autumn olive is that it was promoted to grow. It became a problem because people were growing it with black walnut trees. Because in order to get a walnut tree to grow tall and straight and fast and not branch down low, they planted autumn olive, which fixes nitrogen, and then it causes it to grow straight up so it doesn't branch low down. And they noticed after a while that hey, the fungal diseases on these black walnuts are totally gone in these areas with the autumn olive. What's going on? And they found that the leaf, the high nitrogen content of autumn olive leaves that would constantly falling on the ground attracted soil fungivores, basically. So these little native beasties that eat the fungal lesions out of the walnut leaves that fed the infected walnut leaves and they effectively completely naturally controlled fungal problems in the walnut trees and that alone like understanding our soil plant interactions even if they're invasive that's incredible if we could start a mulching business you know like yeah. an invasive eradication but yeah. what's really it is is like then you spread it underneath our orchards that are plagued with fungus or like there's a lot of solutions here there's a lot of nitrogen cycling and things like that so my big thing would be yeah the take-home would be really like embrace this like natural chaos and just know that there's living things on everything and, yeah. and there's a way to populate them and bring them in for good and not evil. And so, yeah. Oh, that's Get awesome. Get off the bandwagon. I am so glad you brought <laughs> that up and particularly the autumn olive. Not too long ago, my husband went to a work day for a well-known conservation organization in our area. I won't give the name, but he was gone, you know, several hours. He came back and I said, what did you all do? And he said, oh, well, we sprayed the autumn olives with glyphosate, with Roundup. So they mm -hmm. spent the whole day going around this conservation property, blasting it with Roundup. And I was just amazed. And it, it is, it's another, it's kind of another case. It's kind of like the Bradford pear thing. People just love to hate the autumn olives. And um, they're all around us. You know, we live not far from you. And I like to harvest them in the fall and make the berries and all that. I, I love them. I think they're beautiful. But I'm so happy to know that they have a use <laughs> that's not totally destructive. Yeah. And it's completely out of the spotlight at all. Yeah. People just choose yes. to really harp because that's where the money is too. Like there's a lot of grants for invasive eradication. Yes. There's a lot of money out there that fuels the hate train. But really yeah. like we just got to learn how to, in order to control it, we have to learn how to use it. Like yeah. once again, give it a practical use that as we humans are really good at, we'll just keep using it until it's gone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And then ta-da. And it's that way with so many so. things. You know, people are like, oh I, oh, I hate the, oh, get rid of the purple nettle. It's everywhere. Get rid of the glaucoma, the ground ivy. It's everywhere. You know, and yeah, like you say, so much hatred. <laughs> so much hatred. I love that. These yeah. are plants. I love that. Just figure out how to use it and then we'll use it all up. Great. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh. So, Eliza, what does the good dirt mean to you? 
I mean, dirt's pretty amazing. <laughs> so <laughs> right now, the good dirt me uh, anywhere that's got good dirt is perking for a septic system, and I can't purchase it <laughs> <laughs> because it's getting developed. <laughs> wow. Oh, no. Yeah, but good dirt is just really alive in recognizing that the interface of where like trees meet humans meet insects meet the medium that's holding on to all of these things like they're all so connected and so good dirt to me is like it not only starts life but it, it creates life and so it's ever yeah. going it's something that no matter how many layers we keep peeling back we'll never know the full extent of all the relationships that are just mangling around in the dirt that make it good or make it terroir, you know, or give it any sort of label that's ideal. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Well, this has been so much fun. I've learned so much today. Thank you so much for coming on. The Good Dirt. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Glad we made it happen. Is there anything else you'd like to leave our audience with about yourself or what you do or is anything else you want to talk about? I would say like one of the hardest things in doing what I do is access to land. And if you are a landowner, it's really easy to get somebody on your land that's to grow annuals because it's no risk to you. Oh, it's just a year, you know, but I would really, really advise thinking more long-term. And if you want somebody on there to grow vegetables without stealing your soil nutrients, or if you want somebody to grow orchards, if you want to offer an opportunity for somebody to grow something that's much more long-term or or with a long-term investment in mind, please, you can reach out to me. I'm happy to talk through like what that means, at least from an orchard perspective, but we're really not making a lot of headway in the realm of perennial agriculture because of land tenure. And it's just really hard to think about these days. People have a hard time thinking 15 years down the line. And so if I could have a magic wand, I would have everybody have a long-term sense of thinking because truly like trees are where the carbon storage is and especially livestock with trees have been beat down through my land searches of trying to find land. Uh And I've also been beat down through the years of leasing land and having bad leases that ultimately I planted a bunch of trees and now I don't have any access to them anymore. Mm, Yeah. And everybody has that. That's been a perennial farmer and a lot of annual farmers too. Mm -hmm. And so there's such a need for it in the Southeast too. Like if you're in the Northeast or in the West, like, or in the Midwest, there's so many organizations that are out there like land trusts that'll help pair people with land. In the Southeast, there's nothing like everything there is, is some half-assed attempt to like, they like coded the website themselves in the nineties and like, and it's just like everybody posts there and all they're looking for is the temporary farmer. Yeah. Like to help, Mm. to help them with their taxes for that year or something. So instead of getting your farm hayed, hay, (laughs) this is another thing. Those hay people are stealing your nutrients. And if they're never putting anything back, they're not saving you. You need to get a tree crops farmer or a livestock farmer Mm -hmm. or somebody in that. So take the plunge, like that next Mm -hmm. step. Don't let people hay your property. If you've got Bradford pear coming up all over, all of a sudden they took too much. Mm. So, so people can get in touch with you through your website and yep. on, are you on Instagram and all this? I'm things? on Instagram at Eliza Apples, mm-hmm. E-L-I-Z-A-P-P-L-E-S. Oh, you can get in touch with me through one of my websites called Fruit and Fodder, uh, fruitandfodder.com. 
And then you can buy charcuterie from hugtree.com. Great. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, thanks so much. This was great and interesting. (laughs) And we're neighbors. So hopefully we'll get to meet you sometime really soon. Yeah. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Good Dirt Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll share it with a friend to spread the good dirt. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow-living lifestyle community, and the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's WeAreLadyFarmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye. Goodbye.